0: We're going to be in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12 today. Um, if I haven't met you, my name's Jay. I'm one of the elders here at Cornerstone. Um, I think I know most of you. This is the, the summer the summer uh, level of crowd. This is great. I feel like a small group. Well, full disclosure, um, if you've been here a while, you've, you've... Oh, I forgot to unmute it, didn't I? Sorry. Test, test. Full disclosure, I, should, I was, I was going to say, I, if you've been here for a while, I preached this sermon in 2016, um, but if you're like me, I wouldn't remember it either, so. Uh, but and honestly, it bears repeating. It's something that I need to hear often. Um, I need reminded of it frequently, and, but the funniest thing is um, the first line back when I, when I delivered this in 2016 was, was as follows. I can't remember a time when America was more divided. Isn't that cute? Years 2020 through 2022 might have something to say about that. I go on. Whether it's race relations, the presidential race, the partisan divide, as sharp as ever, it'd be hard to make the case that we currently have a strong national unity. Well, clearly nothing has changed. (laughs) In fact, it's gotten a lot worse. Um... You know, diversity is at the heart of kind of America's identity, um, and we're, we've been founded on a, a principle of diversity, and we're a melting pot, and we value diversity, but um, the thing about diversity, it can also threaten unity, can't it? Sometimes they're, they're in opposition. Um, we might think the easiest way to be unified is to be uniform, uniformity. Um, which would lead to tribes and cliques and ethnic groups, and which is not bad, but there's, um, there's beauty in that. But um, that can compromise diversity. We also want diversity, but that makes unity a challenge. So it's a, it's a bit of a, a conundrum. Um, and I was really encouraged by the picture that Jordan gave us last week from 1 Peter um, of, of the church as living stones being fit into a house um, each stone a little different, none necessarily amazing, um, but the diversity actually adding to the unity. Cause maybe there's one stone that's got a little knob and it fits into a divot of another stone. If you saw the picture of, of Great Zimbabwe, you know, the stones were kind of generally square, but they kind of dipped and, and they, whoever built that was a master of fitting them together and it was very stable, obviously. It's still standing. Um, but the miracle is of the church is Jesus is building a lasting house out of all of us odd-shaped, not necessarily amazing stones, and it's going to be both diverse and unified at the same time. Um, I had Mark read this morning, Revelation 7, um, 9 through 12, and the, the point of that passage I wanted to bring out is just the... You see both diversity and unity there at the same time. There's diversity. we got every nation, tribe, people, and language, um, but we also have unity because they're, they're all together worshiping Jesus around the throne. It's this glorious, united diversity that the world longs for. And the church is a foretaste of it. It's a place where people of all different ages and ethnic backgrounds and political persuasions um, are together and loving each other it's a group that the world should look at and go what in the world are you guys hanging out together for what what do you have in common well this is this is why unity within the church is so important it's a priority in the new testament yet we all know the church is a place with diversity not just outwardly but but on a variety of 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 issues social issues theological issues from worship style to clothing choices to schooling of our kids, political views, theological issues, old earth versus young earth, etc. We could go on, and that diversity could certainly threaten unity. And it has at several points throughout the history of the church. In fact, it's led to separations, not always a bad thing, but, um, but unity remains difficult. Um, and Paul's going to set a template for unity in a diverse church, in Romans 14 to 15, chapters 14 to 15, we're just going to look at the first part of chapter um, 14, but in summary, true unity comes from being united around one purpose, with the freedom to pursue that purpose in a diversity of ways. Does that make sense? Unity comes from being united around one purpose, with the freedom to pursue that purpose in a variety, a diversity of ways. Of course, there are fences <laughs> to stay within, but that's not what Paul's talking about right now. He's going to make, Paul's going to make one statement of truth with three sort of gospel implications from that, that, un, that can unify a diverse church. And um, this is our passage. Uh, let's see, well, it's not the passage? No, okay, I guess I don't have that. Anyway. That's our, okay, that's our passage. He's going to make one statement, and the statement is, our aim is to please God with our lives. That's just, that's, a, that's the Christian life. Our aim is to please God, right? That's not a controversial statement. And it's His judgment that matters. These are the implications. It's, it's His judgment that matters. And we will stand before God by His grace, not by our merits. And finally, we can honor Him with diverse convictions. And we're going to see how these truths will unite us uh, a little bit later. But if we miss this as a church, we become fractured and cliquish and exclusive and partisan. But if we get this, we can maintain unity amidst a number of varying um, views on a variety of issues or, or even disagreements. This would be a church where the weak and young believer isn't intimidated or concerned they've got this or that wrong, but they're encouraged and nurtured. Um, it's a church where the believer with convictions that are outside the norm can both be loved and checked, held accountable to the scriptures. And all this is possible only with Jesus as the head of the church. Um, let me pray before we get started in our passage. Lord, our aim is to please you. You've redeemed us. We are yours. Um, we want to honor you with our lives. We want to honor you in a diversity of convictions convictions. And backgrounds, and um, we pray that you would teach us from your Word, by your Holy Spirit, uh, what this looks like. Open our ears to your Word, Amen. Well, I'm just going to read our passage, verses one through twelve. Is that yeah, okay, I'm there now. Um, I'm reading from NASB. But uh, now accept the one who's weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak Eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. But as for you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you as well, why do you regard your brother or sister with contempt? For we will all appear before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, to me every knee will bow and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Well, if you want a roadmap, um, this passage really has four um, imperatives or commands. Um, it could be summarized as accept the weak, don't regard the weak with contempt, don't judge the strong, and be fully convinced in your own mind. And then there are four um, sort of grounds for those commands, and that would be God has accepted him, for God is able to make him stand, for we live for Jesus, Lord of all I'm summarizing here, and everyone will give account to God. And those, those four and four can kind of be collapsed into two and two, really, because you see the overlap there, right? Um, so it really could be summed up as, accept each other, for God is accepted. And be fully convinced in your own mind, for we live to honor Jesus. Well, clearly there's, there's potential for disunity in the uh, Roman church um, due to differences of conviction. We have the weak. Paul describes the weak as those who believe they should abstain from meat. Um, they should set aside certain days as holy. And later in the chapter, we're not going to get there, but avoid drinking wine. So um, this is the, the weak. Uh, you, could, you, could, you could read that as the ones who feel more bound to obey ceremonial laws. They just feel more more convicted about regulations and rules. Um, And the strong, Paul doesn't use that term in this section, but he does in chapter 15. They weren't hung up on those issues. They were less bound to those laws and regulations. They were convinced that they weren't binding on on their lives. Uh, And please note, this this only applies to issues that are... (laughs) The scripture genuinely does not forbid, right? This is, this is talking about meat and drinking wine. This does not apply to sexual immorality or something like that, obviously, right? So the weak and the strong are talking about marginal issues that the scriptures don't condemn, but someone may feel convicted or not about. And Paul doesn't tell us, but the weak sound like Jews drawn to Old, to Old Testament regulations. And the strong sound probably like Gentiles who aren't held back by them. Um any case, you know, Paul senses danger. It doesn't really matter. Um Paul senses danger. Can you imagine the, the the potential for conflict there? I mean, Republicans, Democrats, that's nothing compared to Jews and Gentiles. That would be uh just the potential for some incendiary uh uh divisiveness. So to them he tells he says this, the one who does not the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. So you can picture the weak the weak side, quote unquote weak side is judging the strong to be spiritually reckless. You know, they're they're indulging in meat and wine and they're ignoring holy days that we really should you know observe and um, and on, on the other side, the strong is despising the weak, you know, looking down on them, look, regarding with contempt. Maybe the weak just can't enjoy these things that, that we enjoy. What's going on? Maybe there's a condescending attitude. Maybe there's a pride. Um, maybe they feel a little judged, um, right? Well, hopefully it's obvious that this scenario is not limited to the early church. <laughs> In fact, we're going on year three of a scenario that easily fits into this uh, paradigm into this with the situation that paul's describing right such as scripture tells me to submit to my the, the governing authorities but how far indefinitely in what matters scripture tells me to love my neighbor you maybe heard these arguments discussed ad nauseum for two years three years love my neighbor but how does that look the same for every neighbor Scripture tells me to maintain my, a good reputation among outsiders, but how do I go about doing that? How far is too far before I'm just living for the approval of the world? See, these are, these are issues that have a whole lot of, that have a range of, of conclusions, right? And judging and despising certainly happened in my own heart. <laughs> I can say for sure that happened, and it's not good. And this happens, I think, when we're not rooted in the gospel. When we're not rooted in God's acceptance of us as a gift through Christ. And here's, what, here's kind of what goes on in my own heart. I might start to think that God loves me to the degree that I get it right, to the degree that I think I'm getting it right, my theology, my behavior, whatever, I'm, I'm doing it right. I subtly um, start to hold that with pride when I see others that I, don't, that, I, that I think aren't as spiritual as myself, at least in my own thinking. And I assume that anyone who disagrees is either compromising, and I judge them, or is just wrong, and I despise them, look down on them. But the fact that someone disagrees with me is a little bit unsettling, and since I've associated my rightness with sort of a pride and sense of worth, a challenge to my convictions is a subtle challenge to my worth and my justification before God. Hostility ensues, and it's not hard to see how this chain of events can lead to real disunity, even hatred. Well, God forbid that this would persist in the church. God forbid. What a false picture of the glorious united kingdom of God and of Jesus who came to redeem a diverse people. What would it say about Jesus if his church is divided, bitter, and petty? But I have to admit, I see it in my own heart. It's it's ridiculous. (laughs) There have been times when Let's say I've, I've learned something that I didn't know, or I've, you know, maybe started to um, see a measure of victory over sin that wasn't there before, and it isn't five seconds before I'm looking down on someone who was in the position I was in not five seconds ago. It's amazing the capacity of my heart to be proud, and to, to judge, and to look down, and this, I think, is part of the danger that Paul's concerned about in Rome. If we're not listening to what Paul has to say here, it can happen at Cornerstone too, of course. So, what does Paul tell us to do with these disagreements? Debate, come to an agreement? Split into separate churches? Accept accept <laughs> one another. In other words, welcome into fellowship. Regard them as your brother and sister to be loved and served, not an opponent to be sparred with or misguided soul to correct or an irritant to endure or a blockhead to snicker at. No, a dear brother or sister to love and not half-heartedly. First one finishes, not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. So in other words, accept them and not in a way that discourages in a way that doesn't discourage not harping on the disagreement so as to erect barriers to fellowship rather wholeheartedly you're fully one of us you know that feeling when you're not quite part of the group feels like not that right Accept someone wholeheartedly disagreements and all and notice that Paul says nothing about coming to an agreement in this section This should tell us unity is a higher priority than unanimity or uniformity. Paul's okay with a little diversity of opinions, so long as it doesn't violate Scripture. Right? Again, we're not talking about issues that violate the Scriptures. And when we have a unity that's rooted on the foundation that Paul is going to describe, um, unanimity kind of becomes somewhat irrelevant as regards unity in the church. So we are to accept and it's important to understand who we are to accept. Paul says, the weak in faith. The reason I emphasize that is there is faith. It may be weak, but there's faith. Is, these are believers. right? These are believers. It's clear from the context of this passage and from the rest of the chapter, these brothers who are weak, this is, these are believers. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. Accept them because Paul's telling us they're acting in good faith. They're doing what their conscience tells them is the best way to honor Jesus. Yes, Paul calls them weak. (laughs) We saw earlier the issues they're weak on. They're, They're abstaining from meat. They consider some days more holy than others. They abstain from wine. So how does that make them weak? Why does Paul use that word? Well, I don't think it means, I don't think weak in faith means tenuous faith in jesus as their savior i don't think it means they're about to fall away into unbelief john piper puts it this way they lacked the knowledge that would undergird and liberate their faith they could not trust god for the holy joy of eating meat or drinking wine because they lacked some crucial knowledge what knowledge is that that they lacked Well, in verse 14 of this chapter, Paul says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So they lack the knowledge that nothing is unclean, basically. Right? And there's a similar passage and situation in 1 Corinthians uh, 10 verse 25, where he says, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the grounds of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And John Piper again, uh, to summarize, says, In other words, the fullness of faith to eat what you will to the glory of God is based on the fullness of knowledge that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So weakness does not come from, or comes from not being confident that God has given them meat and wine to enjoy. Right, but notice two things about this "quote unquote" weak group. First, Paul thinks they're mistaken. Paul thinks they're wrong. He disagrees with their position. He says it arises from a certain weakness. That's not the position he would hold. But second thing, this group is to be accepted as is. As is, not. Amending their position, not after they've seen the light and matured, as is. So accept the weak brother, Paul says. Now there may be some of you who hear accept and it kind of sticks in your craw. This sounds like 21st century postmodern culture where everything is to be accepted and nothing's wrong, right? Yeah. Well, I think it's. I think this is. Uh, it's important to before we go any farther. Is this a blanket statement, not to judge? You know that's. That's, we hear that a lot. Don't judge. No, that's not that. It's important to qualify this a little bit before we go any further. Where am I here? Oh, I even had those. Okay, here's what Paul's not saying. First, he's not saying accept unbelievers into Christian fellowship as if they're believers. That's not what he's saying. Uh, there was a popular song when I was a kid, and I can't believe my parents let me listen to the radio that would have this song on it, but it was not good, but the, the, I'll summarize it. <laughs> it's basically saying, if I want to engage in this immoral behavior, it's none of your business, right? I'm going to do it. You need to just butt out. And the, the, the bridge went like this, there's only one judge, and that's God. So just chill and let my father do his job. If you know what song that is, you don't need to acknowledge it. But anyway, just chill, let my father do his job, right? So it's very Pauline, Pauline in the logic, but maybe not so much in the theology. <laughs> They've missed the key, as we're going to see later. But uh, this is not saying don't discern sin, don't accept sin, you know, treasuring unbelievers into Christian fellowship as if they're believers. That's not what he's saying. The context is how Christians relate to Christians in the church as they attempt to live to the glory of Jesus, right? Okay, the second thing Paul is not saying is accept sin in believers. You aren't to accept someone claiming to be a believer who's walking in sin. That's not what he's saying. That's what church restoration is for from Matthew 18, and that still applies, right? You are to discern sin and lovingly confront. If love does not allow you to accept, love requires you to confront. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Third thing Paul's not saying is accept serious doctrinal error. The context is minor issues that don't threaten the gospel as salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's not an issue that is condemned to sin, right? Um, At least the issues that Paul's bringing up are not. He's actually going to go on to commend both sides for how they hold their convictions. And Paul does often address serious theological error and accept is not the word he uses, right? You can think of Galatians 1, 8 and 9 or 1 Thessalonians 5, 3 through 5. He's pretty pretty clear when he's condemning um, doctrinal error. Um, and the fourth thing he's not saying is don't have serious theological discussions. He's not saying that. He's, it, the passage says for us to accept, be unified, and don't quarrel or discourage, it's fine to debate. It's fine to talk about these issues in a manner that's ex- that it's clear that you have accepted this person as a brother or sister, and in their differing opinion, your love is clear um, without judgment, without contempt. So he's not saying don't have serious th- theological discussions about these issues, um, but what he is saying is, unity can and m- should and must exist despite differences of conviction. Right? Unity can occur in spite of all of that. Okay. So accept the weak brother, Paul says. Then he gives us the basis for that instruction, the basis for the unity. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. Verse 3. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. So, this gets back to our couple points at the, from the beginning. Our aim is to please God with our lives. And, um, and notice that that's Paul's assumption. This is, these are believers who want to please the Lord, Right? And his judgment is what matters. God has accepted him. God's judgment is what matters. So notice the the parallel wording between verses 1 and 3. I think I skipped that one. Now accept him for God has accepted him. See that? He goes on. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. So he's making an obvious point that totally destroys this judgmental attitude, and it's it's this. The job of judging a person belongs to that person's true master, right? Before his own master, he stands or falls. This is what you do when you judge. You assess to see if it meets the mark. If it does, it stands. If it doesn't, it falls. This is what Anna does when I ask her if my outfit matches, This is what you're doing when you're judging a person, wrongly judging. You're assessing whether they stand or fall before God based on what may or may not be the true standard. That's ungodly judging. But the standard to meet is God's, and whether someone stands or falls by man's judgment is of no consequence. This would be like if I'm on the sideline of Zoe's soccer game, she's playing keeper, and I'm hollering at her to stop hanging back, run forward, try to score. You know, meanwhile, the coach has put her in the position of defending the goal. She's playing her role well as she's if she's doing what the coach has told her, not someone on the sideline, even if it happens to be her dad. I'm contradicting if I'm contradicting the, the true coach, I'm wrong, not her. Who am I to judge that she's not doing her job when it's her coach that she's trying to please? Well, you and I are not in the position of bestowing or withholding God's approval on other people. Obviously. In fact, Paul puts it more personally, a little farther on. As for you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you as well. Why do you regard your brother or sister with contempt? For we will all appear before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, to me every knee will bow and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Don't bother judging that guy over there. God's going to do that. In fact, he's going to do that for you too and me. So stated another way, you don't stand or fall based on the judgment of another person. You stand or fall before our Master Jesus, the true judge. Well, that might or might not be comforting to hear. If you're like me, there's a constant temptation in the back of my head that I'm not measuring up to God's expectations. The thought of standing or falling before God isn't always very comforting or encouraging, but there's an, a wonderful, indescribably comforting statement in verse 4. I think I have it there. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, we will stand by grace, before him by his grace, not by our merits. The context of standing or falling is the Christian's life and practice. Can I honor Jesus if I'm holding that conviction? And in verse 3, Paul says, God has accepted him, past tense. Yes, I can honor Jesus while holding that conviction. God has accepted me. Now, he goes on and says, he will stand, future tense. I think Paul's referring to the final judgment by the master, Jesus. In other words, yes, you can honor Jesus while holding that position. And yes, you will stand in the end while holding that position. But how? Not because you hold that position or this position. It's not your theology on these issues that causes you now or will cause you in the future to stand before God. Your salvation is not on the line over whether you get the issue of meat or wine or masks right. Why? Because the Lord is able to make you stand. Tom Schreiner explains it this way They will not stand by virtue of their own strength or ability, but because. The Lord will enable them to do so. God promises that those whom he has called to salvation will persevere to the end since the Lord will complete what he has started in us. You might, maybe, first, or maybe Philippians 1.6 comes to mind. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 1.8. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? Tim Keller says that the Christian religion is the only one that delivers the verdict before the performance. If you are the Lord's, the final verdict of you standing or falling has already been rendered. You will stand in the end because Jesus stood in our place. Well, this is in sharp contrast to the pride that might creep into our convictions, that might subconsciously cause us um, to think we stand before God on the strength of our convictions or our theology, right? But the implication of this is you wouldn't stand if God didn't see to it. God's there to hold you, and it's a good thing. Do you hear the power of grace there? Not just giving you something good you don't deserve, but enabling you to even receive it and then keep it? That's the grace of the gospel. What a knockout blow to judgmentalism, right? God's the true judge. He accepts you now on the basis of Christ alone, and he'll make sure you stand in the end. So what's left for humans to judge? You know, truly, who am I and who are you to judge your brother? The judgment's done. What's so amazing about that, remember, is that Paul isn't saying that both are Right? He's not agreeing with both. He disagrees with the weak. He says they've, they've, they've they got wrong, but that's okay. But he is saying that both are standing and are accepted before God. Clearly, you don't stand because of your theological convictions on meat or wine or politics or schooling your kids or eschatology or worship style or whatever. But this is also where it can get confusing How can both opposing viewpoints be honoring to God, particularly one that Paul himself calls weak? Well, Paul's going to show us how both sides can honor Jesus, not by impressing him with our theology, the precision of our theology, or um, the rightness of our arguments, but by a heart of worship that can and should inform our convictions. And at the same time, Paul's taking another swipe at judgmentalism by saying that We can honor him with diverse convictions. Verse 5 through 9. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat. And give the, gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Both sides can honor Jesus by being fully convinced in their own mind that they are offering service to God, offering worship to God. Stated negatively, don't just copy others' convictions. You're, you're liable to violate your own conscience if you do that. And positively, holding your convictions for the Lord or as an act of worship honors Jesus. I mean by that, coming to your convictions about an issue with a heart that longs to honor God on this particular issue the best way that you know how. By prayerfully um, examining the Scriptures, determining which position seems to be closest to God's heart and living it to God's glory. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. So each side is giving thanks over his meal, whether it's a, you know, a garden salad or a steak. And rightly so. You can see Paul telling the Romans, well, you know, slow down weak, slow down strong. Don't assume the worst about each other. You have both thought through the issue and are fully convinced that your conclusion is nearest to God's heart. If not one of us lives for himself; not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. So Paul's saying, if if this is your heart, then you are honoring the Lord, even if the conclusion is a little off. So to both sides, he's saying. You're both striving to honor the Lord, right? And the Lord is being honored in how you hold your convictions. So who are you to judge? Now, I think this is, this is important, this being fully convinced in your own mind principle. Um, I think it's the key that takes the freedom and grace Paul just described and ensures that it's used to honor Jesus. right? He, 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 he kind of set the parameters pretty wide. There's, there's room to disagree on these issues, um, but that shouldn't lead us to be lazy or not think through issues. Um, He's saying we need to be convinced. We need to be living these positions positively. Um, He discourages other believers from playing the role of the Holy Spirit uh, toward toward fellow believers in this regard, but that's because that's what's supposed to be going on between you and God, right? I don't need to meddle um, too much in the position of... My brother because you know the Holy Spirit's doing that again that's not there's not there's nothing wrong with discussing these issues but um, the point is the Holy Spirit is is also doing this work what and um, and what should be going on in each of us the weak the strong is uh, a principle that should be governing every part of our lives which is is this the best way to honor Jesus is the way I dress honoring Jesus Or am I dressing to draw attention to myself? Is homeschooling the best way we can honor Jesus in our schooling? Can I drink this wine with thanksgiving? Or is it just guilt-ridden self-indulgence? Am I honoring Jesus by being entertained by this movie or this football game? Am I parenting the best way I know how to honor Jesus? That needs to be part of our culture as a church. We need to be able to encourage each other to think like that, but still leaving plenty of room for freedom. And in a way that doesn't meddle or judge. And that's tricky. That right? takes grace and patience, takes trust and respect, and really takes a, a family, a close knit church family. But it's essential if we're to honor Jesus in the midst of a diverse people. Because, as says Paul, Jesus is worthy of our worship. From every corner of our lives. Notice in verse 7 and 8, for no one, no not one of us lives for himself. It's stated in an indicative mood, not an imperative. In other words, he's not saying, You must not live for yourself, but not one of us does live for himself, as if that's just what a Christian is. It's not a command, it's just an observation. That's a Christian. Someone who lives not for themselves, but for Christ. Because he's worthy. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Like Philippians 2, 9 and 10 says, every knee and every tongue, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Or, first, or, or Colossians 1.18, that in everything, Christ is preeminent. So, if Jesus' honor is foremost in our minds and our hearts, we're not concerned with the particulars of our brother's convictions because we agree on number one. We both want Jesus to get all the glory. And that's when unity in diversity is possible. We're united by the praise of Jesus. That's heaven. That's what heaven's going to be like. So, that's Paul's argument. As to why we shouldn't judge and also his basis for unity in the midst of diversity. God, the true judge, accepts us as we live out our conscience for his glory. So how does that encourage unity? Well, none of us are justified before God by our intellect or our wisdom regarding issue X, right? And none of us brings anything to the table before God. We're all recipients of way more grace From God, than we will ever have to give anyone else. There's no room for pride here, or judgment, or despising. Humbled recipients of grace just don't do that. And as we come together on Sunday mornings in all our diversity with our eyes on something way bigger than these small little issues, namely the glory of our gentle and lowly Savior. Judging and despising over petty differences is, is just suddenly somewhat important. If we're a church full of people enraptured by Jesus, we won't be judging one another. There's just something much bigger. Um, remember in Revelation, as Mark read, people from every tribe and tongue were united, so that's diversity, united to worship the Lamb. That's where we're headed. So how do we, how do we apply this? I think first you know, get your eyes off your neighbor and how you think they're doing and on to Jesus. Meditate on the glory of Christ. We will only live for his glory if we are enthralled by it. Um, Read the Gospels and meditate on on Christ's uh, life and his work and his, his heart. Read the book Gentle and Lowly. We still have copies of it over here. It's an incredible book that just meditates and and walks through the heart of Christ toward sinners like like us pray that the Holy Spirit would show you more of the glory of Jesus and this will cause us to live to proclaim his excellencies um, just like the passage in first Peter that Jordan talked about last week excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness and to this degree we will not be judging or despising our brother and sister because we're both in awe of Jesus together Secondly, I think contemplate grace. Think and pray about what it means that you have received grace, approval and a promise to stand unrelated to your performance or your opinions. The amazing thing about grace is it doesn't cause us to want to take advantage of us, take advantage of it. right? It humbles us. Someone who truly has received grace, they don't take advantage of it. they're just humbled. And it also cuts out the legs of judgment and contempt for your brother. Finally, examine your life. Who were you tempted to be angry or irritated at or judge or despise? Why? How might these principles of Romans 14 speak to that? Examine your own assumptions and positions. Why do I hold this position? Is Jesus honored by this? That should be the way we think about everything in our lives. Can I thank him for this thing I enjoy? Can I in good conscience do this or that? And if the answer is no, talk to Jesus about it. He's waiting with overabundant grace to receive us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are truly worthy of all praise and honor. You are the, the lamb who was slain to redeem for yourself a people of um, Odd-shaped ordinary stones being put together into a house for your glory um, of people with a diversity of opinions and not all of them well well thought out or well reasoned or quote unquote correct. Um, but Lord Jesus, give us hearts that long for your glory. Um, that would be our first aim and desire uh, that you'd be glorified. Unite us as a church, unite us as cornerstone and as the church universal around. Christ we just pray for for just growing unity in a world that is so fractured Um, and we we just look forward to being with you in heaven where uh, there will be nothing to interrupt our our worship and our delight in you Um, praise you in Christ's name amen